You're listening to Film School, broadcasting every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time at KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, and on the web at KUCI.org slash Film School. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. Global Recordings Network is an organization that has recorded Bible stories in over 5,500 of the world's 8,000-plus languages and dialects and made those recordings available in the most remote regions through inventive low-tech technology. But because missionaries don't speak the languages, they must enlist bilingual native speakers as translators. In your first feature-length documentary, The Tale Enders, Adele Horn raises questions about how people who receive these recordings understand them. Ultimately, The Tale Enders is an exploration of how meaning changes as it crosses language and culture. Adele Horn, welcome to film school. Thanks. It's great to be here. Uh, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing great. Thank yeah. you. You're just up the road in uh, L.A., Santa Monica area? Uh, I'm in L.A., in Silver Lake. Very good. What inspired you to make this film? Was it living in L.A. and being uh, close to where uh, this is going on, Global Recordings Network? You know, that's part of it. It's funny. When I did learn about the organization and found their address, I realized it was just down Glendale Boulevard. Uh-huh. And I live off of Glendale Boulevard, about two miles away from where their storefront was. And it's just a very, it's not there anymore, but it was a very unassuming little storefront with their name on the front and in little white plastic letters. I had driven by it many times without even seeing it. But actually how I first became inspired to make the film goes back to when I was eight years old because my parents were evangelical Christians. Uh A friend of theirs had sent them um, a cardboard record player in the mail that was produced by, I found out later, was produced by Global Recordings Network. And, um, you know, my brothers and I opened it up and were playing with it. And it was this amazing object because it just folds out. It's one flat piece of cardboard. It folds into thirds into a kind of a little triangle. And you put a record on there and you stick a pen in a hole that's been drilled in the record and you turn it by hand. So there's no speakers. No batteries, no electricity. It's like really a hand wind. Which, by the way, they point out that this particular record was made specifically for that machine. Yeah, machine. Right. That's right. That's right. They made um, 78 RPM records, and they made them a little thicker and a little smaller than a normal 78 RPM would be. Right. So it's very much special custom-made object. But it made such an impression on me as a kid that I mean, years later, I was in art school actually, and I kept thinking about that object. And I, I had been really interested in how in travel narratives, you know, like colonial travel narratives and how people describe exploration of frontiers. And I got to thinking about missionaries and perhaps, you know, like letters they might write home or something like that. And thought I wanted to do an audio installation using those record players. Um, and so I kind of tracked them down and and actually, you know, got one of them, didn't end up doing the audio installation, and had this record sort of floating around my apartment for several years. And then, I don't know, something just clicked together, and I realized I wanted, I went back to learning more about the organization and just got really fascinated with what they were doing and decided to make a documentary. Now, are you an evangelical Christian now? I'm not, no. How would you describe your beliefs? um, I would say probably the faith that most, kind of resonates with me is Buddhism. Ah. Um, I'm not, I don't really practice anything. So according to Global Recordings Network, you're destined for hell, I think. That's right. <laughs> did did yeah. you ever have a, a hard time uh, communicating with them or have any, any problems over uh, religion or what you were doing? It was 
challenging for me, I would say, personally, yeah. because it was kind of a way, I was going back and revisiting a whole world, in a sense. I mean, I didn't know Global Recordings Network as a child or anything, but I'd grown up in a, you know, pretty uh, intensely religious family, uh-huh. and so, and it was something I had chosen to move away from in my adult life, um, so it was challenging to go immerse myself in that again. Definitely. It was interesting. I, we had some conversations about faith and religion, and they certainly wanted to kind of convert me back into yeah. the faith. Because they're missionaries. I mean, that's like what they do. Yeah. <laughs> you can't expect well, them well, not well, to want to do that. But they were also respectful of, they didn't push it too far. I wanted to get just a little bit into the, into the organization, because it, it's a fascinating insight. Just the organization itself and how it, how it came about. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, uh, the founder was... Joy Ritterhoff. Joy Ritterhoff. Yeah. And this was 1939 in, in L.A. In L.A. Right, right about the time when uh, Amy Semple McPherson was prophesying. Yeah, it's kind of a, I mean, I don't know this for sure, but it's kind of a theory of mine that Joy Ritterhoff lived really near Amy Semple McPherson's temple. That's in Echo Park, where uh-huh. the Echo Park Lake is. Mm-hmm. Right. I think it's really likely that she at least knew about, I mean, she must have known about Amy Semple McPherson and may have attended some of her very, very popular illustrated sermons that yes. included, you know, lots of entertainment along with preaching a gospel message. Um, you know, she brought, Amy Semple McPherson would bring in props from Hollywood movie sets. She'd bring in wild animals like elephants, mm-hmm. things like that on the stage. And she was hugely popular. I mean, she was like a real event. I think that this probably influenced Joy Ritterhoff to get the idea that, you know, you can use you can use entertainment, you can draw in a crowd and get people interested in hearing a gospel message by using aspects of entertainment. And of course she did it solely with audio by starting to make audio recordings. We're speaking with Adele Horn and the, the film is the Tail Enders documentary film. And what I found fascinating about this is not so much the religion end of it, but just this wonderful library that Global Recordings Network has. Yeah. That there's over 5,500 languages there, and some of the languages, I, I think they're in the film, I, I want to say the number 35, 35 of them don't even exist anymore, languages. They're yeah. not being spoken, and there are many, many that are on the verge of not being spoken. That's right. It's incredible uh, to think that the, the library and the, the piece of human history that's just sitting there on on Glendale Boulevard. Yeah, it's, it's actually incredible. And I, I should say that they've now moved down to Temecula. While I was oh. making the film, they moved um, house that after being in Los Angeles for many, many years. But I remember going into the library and just being kind of overwhelmed by being surrounded by these little paper boxes with reel-to-reel audio recordings in them. And every single one of them had a language that had come from very far away, had been recorded up to 50 years ago in some cases. And yet when you put it on, they would play certain ones of them for me. You, you put on the recording and you hear the immediacy of a human voice, you know, all the qualities of, and texture of the voice, feel the sense of a life there. And yes. it's, it's a really incredible archive. I did speak to a few linguists when I was making the film. I uh-huh. didn't use their interviews in the film. One of the things I really learned about was how, about the issue of endangerment of languages. One of the statistics is that probably in the next 100 years, half the languages that are spoken today won't be spoken any longer. And we're talking about over 8,000 languages that are spoken around the world. Imagine losing 4,000 languages in the next 100 years. And it's just staggering. And it is is remarkable to think that this is the repository of maybe the world's most complete array of of languages on, on the planet. That's really amazing. 
The linguist that I spoke to confirmed that they thought that was true, that it's wow. got, it is the largest collection of recordings. There's a bit of a question as to how useful those recordings would be from a linguistic perspective, because actually what's most useful when you're recording a language from what these linguists told me is that you, you need someone to tell a story in their own language that's from their own culture, rather. So, you know, it, right. a story that has resonance, because they'll be using the kinds of they'll be using kind of common words and words that are significant in the language. If they're translating, let's say, the story of Noah's Ark into their language, you know, they may be really grasping for words. Like, how do you say ark? I mean, there might not even be such a concept as an ark. In uh-huh. Well, and as uh, there's one particular episode in the, in the film where there, uh, there's some back-and-forth banter between the recorder and the recordee, and he's saying there's no word for pain. There's right. no word for... He kept... He, there was two or three words that there was no comparable word in his language. Exactly. And he, one of them is there's no word for punish. Punish. Uh-huh. That was it. <laughs> Which is really significant. Or suffering, as, as I recall. Yeah, yeah, and so, suffering. Yeah. So it's, it, it's, uh, it, I'm sure something does get lost in the translation, but just having this collection is really quite remarkable. Now explain to us what the tail-enders are. What, what's that designation mean? The tail-enders is a term that the, this group of missionaries came up with to describe the people who are their target audience. And... They use this illustration of imagine a line of people um, who are kind of lined up to get the gospel message, and the, these are the people at the tail end of the line. So they are trying to complete their goal of reaching every person in the world with an evangelical message, and so these are the, the people at the tail end. And the other thing about this and about the, the work of these missionaries and their connection to this sort of global capitalism, uh, there's one particular character, I think, from Australia at the very beginning of the film, there is some back and forth between him and a, and a, a resident of this part of the Solomon Islands that uh, logging companies have come in and pretty well beginning, if not in, in the process of stripping the forest. And this gentleman from Australia who's with GNR is saying the, the role there is to help them reconcile the loss of their land and their property with the gospel. Go into a little explanation of that that part of it. Yes, this this devastating logging is happening in the Solomon Islands, and the the Australian missionary you mentioned does say, well, perhaps what our recordings can do in this community is help people reconcile to this loss and kind of just come to terms with it, accept it as the inevitable thing that it is, which is quite different from what, for instance, a missionary from the Solomon Islands was actually, you know, really was using his faith more as a way to resist this change that was very cataclysmic for the for the society there. But it's interesting because I, I was interested in looking at the way that that, you know, missionaries um, have always, I mean, historically, they come from cultures that are dominating and colonizing, and they bring that with them. And whether they intend it or not, it's part of what they do. They often have had a history of opening up doors for commerce and for trade and, and exploitation. Um, you know, of course, there's been missionaries who, who really tried to protect cultures that they were traveling to or, or you know, felt, felt differently from the kind of capitalist exploitation that was happening. But whether they do or not, it's sort of inevitable that that's part of what they're bringing with them. And I think in the case that you just described, you really see that he's bringing a worldview which sort of has this idea that, you know, progress is inevitable mm-hmm. and probably a good thing in the long run, which is very different from what the people in the Solomon Islands feel. They felt many of the people that we met there just felt like we need to preserve our way of living. This is, we, we like things the way they are, and it's certainly not progress to be cutting down all our trees. So. Well, you contrast with a Solomon Island native saying that we'll go to jail, we'll do whatever we have to to stop this from happening. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There is this theme that runs through the, through the film that 
there's sort of the taming of the savages here in order to make and to bring about this inevitable globalization of capital and and how that does play out in these different communities well while you were interested in that mike yes i was interested in in just the way language played in this what you're saying is perhaps the missionaries are just there is a wedge for capitalism Right. I was just having fun with the process of the translations because mm-hmm. there's no one who really knew the language walking in. Right. Uh, they just had to try and find someone who spoke English. Can you talk a little bit about that and the mistakes that were made along the way? Sure. That was one of the aspects that really fascinated me and, and made me want to make the film as well, which is this kind of way in which the translations that the missionaries are performing are like a game of telephone. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, there may be a missionary who only speaks English, and let's say they're going into South America, they would often have to go through a couple of layers of translation. So they have a script in English, they have a person who speaks an indigenous language of the country they're in, and then, of course, the kind of trade language of the region might be Spanish. So they'd have to find first someone to translate from English to Spanish, then they'd have to translate from Spanish into the indigenous language. Um, And in some cases, it would even go through more layers than that. It might be three or four levels of translation. So it really becomes like a game of telephone where you're sitting in a circle and passing the message along. They give a couple of examples of really sort of funny mistakes that happened, which, I mean, I say mistakes. It's not exactly clear whether they were intentional or not, but one of the recordings that they found was in their archive had been there for many years. They played back for um, actually a group of Native Americans, and the recording instead of being the story of the prodigal son, um, yeah. the, the person who's listening started really laughing, and she said, oh, no, you've got you to gotta change that because it's the story of the prodigal pig. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a, a pig who runs away from home and has all these adventures, and uh, you know, it kind of follows the story of the prodigal son, but it's a pig instead. Uh, it's very funny. Yeah. No, I, I love that part of the, of the film. And I was thinking to myself, you know, maybe maybe the story had more meaning if it was a pig for some reason. I don't know. That's that's what's fascinating about language. In or either, yeah. or, or it engaged the audience more if it was a pig. If it was a son, well, you know, all the sons are prodigal. But right. <laughs> that's a good point, yeah. yeah. No, um, we're speaking one, with Adele Horn, yes, and the film is The Tailenders. The other mistake I thought was curious, too, there was a point of, uh, instead of washing away your sins, it was washing away God's sins. Right, and yes. With, it, that's, that's a whole different... <laughs> and that seemed a bit malicious to me. I, I thought somebody was, was going in, he was doing some monkey wrenching. Well, I, I thought that was interesting because obviously because the missionaries don't understand the language, there's a lot of possibilities for resistance on the part of the, the indigenous person making the translation. If they don't really want to be doing this and they're just kind of going along to be polite or whatever, they have lots of possibilities to change the message or subvert it. And I, I thought that was kind of fascinating. Mm-hmm. Now, I noticed from the credits, you did a lot on this film. You filmed it, you obviously directed. What did you learn about the process of filmmaking that you're going to take with you, take forward? Ooh, a lot. <laughs> yeah? Okay. I mean, this is my first feature-length film, mm-hmm. so I, I learned a lot about the whole process of filming and, you know, traveling overseas to film. I mean, there was just a lot of that. One of the things I definitely took away from it was I had such a great community of filmmakers here in Los Angeles mm-hmm. who I showed the film to, talked with, about it at lots of stages, and I honestly don't think I would have made it without those people. I feel like that was incredibly important to me. I had a wonderful co-editor, Catherine Hollander, and you know we, we sat every day and just talked about it and looked at it, and 
I realized how important those conversations are. It's funny because, you know, we're independent filmmakers, but it's not at all independent. It's really such a communal practice, at least the way I like to do it. I just feel really fortunate to have had those kinds of friendships and all the advice and counsel I got from really smart and um, talented people. And I just, I think that's really important. As a filmmaker, you, for me, you know, especially if you're making films on this really low budget, you need that support system. You need not to be isolated. Adele Horn, thank you very much for being here on Film School. Thank you so much. To learn more about Film School, listen to more interviews, or subscribe to our podcast, visit our website at KUCI.org slash filmschool.